A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. If you sleep poorly for years, will you end up having dementia? If you already have dementia, what poor sleep could do to you? Dementia and sleep is a topic that I haven't covered before on this podcast, but I get these questions from my patients a lot. From research, we do notice that patients with dementia experience changes in their sleep patterns. But why, how, and what can we do? Today, Dr. Rosie Gibson from Massey University, New Zealand, will join us. She has a background in both psychology and clinical sleep medicine, and she will share with us her research among patients and families dealing with dementia. Hi, Rosie. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. I know we are connecting from across the world. Actually, you are in New Zealand right now. I am. Yep,、yeah. I'm based at、um, Massey University in New Zealand. Cool. So, how about you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? What brought you into the field of sleep? Yeah, sure. So,、um, I'm Rosie Gibson, and、um, I've been working in the field.、Um, For a while now, I guess like 15 years or so,、um, I started out studying psychology in the UK and finding an interest for sleep,、um, sleep science, and moved into clinical sleep practice、um, at Bristol Hospital. But then came over to New Zealand in 2007 or eight, and I did my master's thesis in sleep of babies and parents. But I always had a strong interest in the sleep of older people, and particularly people with dementia, because when I was studying, I always I had a part-time job working as a care assistant for those communities, and I really saw for myself how sleep could be challenged for those people. I moved into that area for my PhD, which I finished in 2009, and since then I've been based at the Sleep Wake Research Centre, where I did my masters and PhD, and. Really built a whole program of research around sleep and、um, geriatrics, really in New Zealand. It's something that hadn't been done at that stage in New Zealand,、um, and I'm now based in the Health and Aging Research Team, which is also at Massey University, but in、uh, Manawatu campus.、Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of studies looking at sleep and aging, and particularly with people with dementia and their carers. Yeah, yeah. I think not only in New Zealand. It- I think in many other countries, it's a it's a area, right? Kind of、mm-hmm. like still a blank. In China, I cannot think of any institute actually focusing on that yet. Yeah, and it's increasingly important. You know, we're living in a society where we are living longer, and older people make up a bigger proportion of our population, and we're all getting older. You know, alongside of、uh, health conditions that become more prevalent with aging, sleep quite often is impacted, and it's a really important. Pillar of health that if we compromise,、um, you know, can lead to poorer outcomes for our waking life. Yeah, I actually noticed a lot of patients coming to me for treatment of insomnia are older adults. But many of the older adults, I would say, they themselves don't have the motivation to seek help. 
a lot of time I notice are the children are really buying to this newer methods of treatment, try to get their parents off sleep medications and bring them into treatment. So I'm curious what you have observed of the challenges elders been facing in terms of sleep. Yeah, so what we seem to find, I think studies looking at the physiology of sleep and aging do indicate that we're more likely to have sleep disorders, whether it's sleep disorder breathing or insomnia or restless legs, they do increase with aging. But when we ask people about their sleep, when we ask older people about the sleep, the prevalence of self-reported sleep problems isn't really that much higher as, as what we'd expect with the kind of physiological studies. And what we found when we go and talk um, to older people in the community about their sleep is there's this real expectation that sleep will get worse um, as we get older. So our kind of threshold for what constitutes a poor sleep um, is much greater. So they're less, they're less likely to go to a doctor and seek help because there is that expectation that it's going to get worse with ageing anyway and it's just something they have to deal with. Um, some are taking medications, but there is there is a reason about of resistance, I think, and people just seem to be getting on with it. It's not until it impacts on somebody else, like you say, a family member, and um, they say, actually, you know, you're up at antisocial times of day or, you you know, um, you're very sleepy in the day or you're snoring, and then they might trot them along um, to the GP. But usually it's, it's a gradual change. A lot of the older people I've spoken to kind of say they just kind of get on with it, and if they feel tired, they'll just take a nap, and they've learned to self-manage. Oh. those problems I think the issue is then though there is a, a clinical sleep disorder underlying uh, and it's not being addressed sort of earlier on in older age then it can become if it gets worse or if that person does end up having other conditions like a dementia then having getting them established on a treatment plan like um, CPAP for sleep disorder breathing or um, some medications or a cognitive behavioral therapy is a lot more challenging as they get older and frailer. Yeah, yeah. Talking about dementia, I think that's a very big topic and a topic actually we haven't covered in this podcast before. So I'm really excited to have you and share more knowledge on that aspect with us all. So uh, I know there are some anxieties going on among many people that if they don't sleep well, uh, they, they may have at a higher risk of developing dementia in the future. I, I see a lot of people with insomnia coming in with this huge anxiety and make their insomnia even worse. So based on the literature, the research and people you talk to, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's been in the media quite a bit, hasn't it? And we do see those epidemiological studies showing that the if you have poorer sleep or reduced sleep duration that you are, it's a risk factor for increased likelihood for dementia. But we do have to remember that the incidence of dementia, you know, isn't massive and it just increases it a small amount. And I think it's like many things, when we have poor sleep, it does impact our mood and our functioning and including cognitive functioning. And we know that sleep's really important for um, consolidation of memories um, as well as clearing out you know it's, it's kind of likened to a computer really where you're kind of defragging overnight and there is research now showing that it does have a kind of cleansing properties of like washing out proteins um that are associated with increased likelihood of cognitive impairment and dementia so there is this bit of panic but i think 
it's tricky, isn't it? Like you say, if people are anxious about their sleep, then they're less likely to sleep. So it's really just looking after our own sleep. Some people are used to sleeping a short amount throughout their life and continuing to do that isn't a problem. It's a bit like looking after our diet, really. It's just being sensible with it. We know that, um, yeah, poor sleep over a long, a chronic period of time um, does increase risks of um, sort of mental health as well as physical health outcomes. Um, but in dementia in particular, we know that there's sort of neurophysiological um, deterioration to area of the brain related to sleep related to the circadian system. So early on in dementia-related diseases like Alzheimer's disease, sleep can be one of those kind of early factors to start becoming disturbed. So it's it's tricky to know whether it's the sleep disturbance that's creating the dementia or whether some of those symptoms are happening before some of the waking symptoms catch up. And it's and the brain's such a complicated thing. It's it's still quite tricky to know which kind of come first. Yeah, sounds like a chicken egg issue. Yeah, similar with depression. You know what we see with depression as well. Yeah, yeah. The among patients who already diagnosed with dementia, right? I cannot imagine how challenging it is for themselves, for their family members, for their caregivers. Um, what have you observed among this patient population? What their sleep look like? Yeah, so um, a lot of my work's focused on people with dementia who are living in the community. And what we tend to see talking to these people and their and their family members who are supporting them is that sleep has changed gradually with the progression of their dementia. And what we tend to see is um, changes to their kind of sleep timing. And, and you know, we'd associate this with some um, deterioration within their um, circadian system in that they're feeling more sleepy in the daytime and more alert at nighttime. They're quite often unsure what time of day it is. So going to bed at maybe inappropriate times and getting up during the night thinking it's time to get up and start the day. You know, so that that can create increased daytime sleepiness as well, um, which can make it really challenging to plan um, activities during the daytime for themselves and, and their family. Other sleep-related symptoms we see with dementia um, the sleep becomes lighter and more fragmented. So we often see that people who have a dementia will wake up and maybe feel quite confused, perhaps um, feeling of agitation or that they need to check something because the distinction between kind of waking and sleeping uh, brain activity isn't as clear cut as it would be with someone who doesn't have a dementia. Um, so that can be quite frightening. And sometimes some of the medications that are used, um, you know, the cognitive enhancers can create an increase in um, REM sleep, which is where we're more likely to have dream-related activity. And um, some of the people with dementia I've spoken to have reported sort of increased nightmares um, and waking up feeling quite scared and so on, or even having kind of hallucinations on waking in the morning, which again, all of those symptoms can really exacerbate their waking symptoms of dementia, you know, for the for the having problems with memory or being able to function you know if they've had a bad night's sleep as well it can just exacerbate that um sleep disorder breathing as well is something that can increase with dementia so yeah it's it's it can be challenging but you know and then other people um report that they have no no issues so it's not one size fits all and what we know with aging and sleep as well as dementia is it's all 
personable you know we have and that's why I think that it's really important to talk you know rather than just looking at the statistics of what we expect to see with aging and dementia is actually talking to people about their own experience how they expect to sleep and how they used to sleep as a younger person and how they would like to be sleeping and how that fits in with their family dynamic and what would be useful for them yeah. Right, right. I like that to um, every person just really important to value their own experience. Mm. Right? If that bothers them, if uh, they, they, no matter what diagnosis they have, if they experience sleep disturbance, and then maybe themselves, the provider team and the caregivers can try to figure out some ways of managing it. Yeah. It's very hard to intervene with us. You know, we, as um, researchers or clinicians could go in and identify a sleep problem. But if that individual and their family don't see it as an issue, we can't, it's, it's intervening is just not, it's not going to work and, and sometimes can shift things out of balance for that family, you know, by trying to. Oh, yeah. wow. That's a good point too, right? Like providers, clinicians can see a problem, but family may think differently. Yeah, and and it's and it's shifting things maybe gradually or putting enough information and education out there for them to come to the conclusion that that's something that would be useful for them to address. Because when we start advising or guiding, you know, giving them things to do during their routines to try and change sleep, if that's impacting on something else, you know, if they enjoy getting up at a particular time or going to particular clubs or even just things like watching television at nighttime, it's very hard to change those behaviours if they've done it for a very long time, unless they're really identifying that sleep's an issue. But I think that kind of gentle approach, um, you know, information around use of caffeine and alcohol and and screen time and so on, you know, these are the basic sleep hygiene things that you can kind of start with to give people the tools to to self-address their sleep. But obviously, if there's something, a clinical issue, it's it's trying to get that sweet spot um, while the person uh, living with dementia is at that kind of early enough stage that we can guide them to some new tactics for their sleep, whether it's establishing one uh, CPAP for sleep apnea or a behavioural plan for insomnia that they can maintain throughout their journey with dementia. Yeah. So we can always give some education, some information, but eventually the patient themselves or their family member together have to make the decision whether they yeah it's tricky eat. yeah yeah and it's about making it work for the whole family you know if if the the rest of the family have a different schedule or working and so on it has to all fit in with what they're able to do for one another and it's balancing that alongside the other symptoms of dementia and whatever medications and uh, other care assistance that might be coming in hey talking about the families talking about um the system around dementia and patients right i know for um uh, when i did a neuropsychological assessment before in a hospital i met several patients with dementia and their family members and when if they have a partner and if they live at home or there are some kind of family members are taking care of them I noticed what a big challenge and stress that was on the caregivers. So I'm curious how a dementia diagnose impact the caregivers and their mm. Yeah, it certainly can be a big impact. And what we found in our focus groups and I've done some recent interviews, you know, with caregivers is that their sleep can deteriorate alongside 
their family member with a dementia. And it's around being woken and perhaps having to provide that physical support of the person they're looking after and needs assistance, maybe going to the bathroom or just resettling if they've woken up confused about the time of day and so on. But then they also report sleep problems associated with worry about their partner. So insomnia, sort of secondary insomnia to worrying about the situation, whether they can um, continue to manage or if they've had um, an experience that's, you know, been quite emotional, it's then really hard for them to resettle. Whereas the person they're supporting quite often will have that interruption in their sleep and actually quite often be able to get back to sleep quite quickly. The caregivers often left feeling quite alert afterwards, so more difficult to wind down. And also having to kind of shift the time that they sleep to match that of the person they're supporting. So if their partner is wanting to go to bed a lot earlier um, and they know that that means they're probably going to wake up a lot earlier than the care is often shifting their sleep outside of a time that's kind of physiologically ideal for them. So it's, again, more challenging for them to sleep at that time. And unlike the person they're supporting, um, many of the caregivers report less opportunity to recoup their sleep during the day. So rather than taking a nap um, when the person they're supporting has a nap, they might still be rushing around doing other errands around the house or catching up, you know, doing some work and so on. So a lot of feeling of daytime sleepiness, which they can't necessarily address. I think different countries probably have different amounts, but I think, you know, dementia is one of these areas that's underfunded and respite services aren't so great. Some of the people I've spoken to will have short periods of respite where their family member can go and stay maybe in residential care for a few days or a week, but it doesn't really give a huge opportunity for that caregiver to um, recoup their sleep because, again, they'll tend to use it at a time where perhaps they've broken their rest so they're less able to support or they need to paint a room of the house so that, you know, so they've freed up that time. So these people are really busy, but quite often they're older too if they're. A spousal carer and they've got their own you know age-related health conditions creeping in but what we find I think if our sleep's disrupted we're at increased risk of having other conditions or falling over and so on and then if we not if the caregiver gets affected in that way and they get knocked out um, because they're exhausted or they have a fatigue-related incident it's increasing the need for institutionalized care unfortunately. Mm, I yeah. see. Wow, that's definitely challenging, especially, you know, if if the, the caregivers have their own challenges, their own health yeah. issues. We're all individuals and we all have our own stuff mm-hmm. going on. So the caregivers quite often have their own responsibilities as well as their own health conditions that need management. Yeah. Right. So at what point, how do people decide when it's time to move the patients from the house sighting from mm. home to, uh, you know, institute? Usually there's some kind of event that triggers that decision. It's a very challenging decision for families to make. So a lot of the people I've spoken to, you know, there's been an issue like they or their family members had a fall or um, had a um, an issue where they needed to go into hospital for whatever reason and then the decision was not necessarily taken out of their hands, but it was made sort of more smooth um, because the extended family would come around and they'd have those hard conversations or the doctor would kind of have those hard conversations. What we find with the sleep-related stuff is although 
sleep gets to a point for a lot of the carers where they are simply exhausted and a lot of them report really not getting very much at all towards that time of transition. But it's not until after they've made the transition that they realise how sleep deprived they were. And some of the interviews, you know, we've done is they sort of say those weeks afterwards, they just slept like a log. They can't believe, you know, they say, oh, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done another day. I would have just been a zombie. But actually, they're on such a state of high alert when they're in that caregiving situation because that's their main goal is supporting the, the person at home and they're just sort of running, running on empty, really. So it's not until afterwards and then they can look back and, and appreciate how tired they were and they'll say things like, I can't believe I was actually driving or doing this and that. But they had there's a feeling that they had no choice. After they've transitioned, the person with dementia into care, though, there's sometimes this assumption that sleep's going to magically get better. And unfortunately, it's not always the case because they're still really an integral part of that family member's life and they still have feel that uh, sense of responsibility. And for some people, their sleep is, their routines have been kind of damaged for a while. So it takes a long time to adjust. And there's a, a feelings of grief, you know, can be huge and they can impact our sleep as well. So for some of these people, it does take a long time to recover. You know, it's not just kind of move that person with a sleep problem into uh, residential care and then everyone else's sleep will fall into place. It's, um, yeah, it takes time. Wow. Okay. So it sounds very important for the caregivers to set reasonable expectations. Yeah. And lots of them talk about how, you know, sleep becomes a bit of a luxury. It's still disturbed because they, well, they miss they miss the, the family member, um, but they're also their sleep is so disrupted. They're used to sleeping on high alerts, so they're waking a lot, but they're appreciating those luxuries of being able to take a nap and perhaps they buy a new bed or, you know, nice chair that they can nap in in the daytime. So there is that sense of being being able to sleep when they want on their own time and so on um, um, after after the caregiving journey is finished for them. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm curious, when you face the patients with dementia and their caregivers, uh, have you noticed um, any suggestions or educational point that's really helpful or being taken very well by most families and patients? I mean, we've piloted a study where we've um, used timed bright light therapy and exercises alongside sleep education. And I think some of those basic messages around having a routine exposure to bright light in the morning and that that information around, you know, if you really increase those things that make your circadian system more alert during the daytime, um, that that will help with your sleep at nighttime. You know, those are some of the key messages that I think some of the families have found really useful. It's not running off by itself at nighttime. It's actually informed by what we do during the daytime. That a sleep intervention can take place at kind of 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, can be quite revolutionary for some. And we found that when we trialed the light boxes, you know, for some people, getting them just at that right time, you know, especially if they were unable to go outside and have a walk perhaps in natural light, if they were using these light boxes at morning tea when they were reading the newspaper together, some of those families then found that the person with dementia was able to stay alert and active enough that they could perhaps go out and visit some friends in the afternoon without falling asleep and then have a planned nap rather than just falling asleep spontaneously. And then together, those things can help their sleep at nighttime, you know, because if we can have scheduled activities that promote the circadian system and then maybe a planned nap after lunchtime, 
and and things like reducing um, caffeine after lunch and alcohol in the evening. Those are tricky things because people get very set in their ways around things like eating and drinking and uh, what time of day they do it and what, you know, how much they drink and so on. Um, but yeah, just tweaking those things, maybe changing to decaffeinated coffee and not drinking as much alcohol can really help with everybody's sleep. Yeah. Right. And baby steps, right? Baby step change, tiny yeah. tweaks, possibly much easier for people to apply. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that some people found useful is just considering what time of day they're taking their pre-existing medications. You know, most medications will have an alerting or sedating side effect, possibly. So it's actually just having a chance to talk through perhaps with the GP if you are having sleep problems. You know, this goes for any of us. Perhaps we can change the time of day we're taking some of those to help support good sleep. Mm. Yeah. I like those. Sounds like a lot of the timing issues, uh, daily routine issues, and uh, uh, light exposure, all like very useful tips. Yeah, they all work together. And unfortunately, again, if someone has um, a cognitive impairment or uh, and if they have a physical impairment as well, or they're not necessarily um, safe to go out by themselves, you know, if some people dementia find it very difficult to go out and about, so they're less likely to get those time cues for the circadian system, like a routine uh, exposure to light or exercise, you know, that really help to promote the um, the circadian system. So it's having people around, you know, being able to support them to do it and perhaps doing it together as a family um, and fitting that into the schedule of all the other appointments and housework and so on that they have to do. It's like taking care of our diet, really. Sleep's one of those things that you'd have to keep considering and supporting throughout the life course um, to avoid it deteriorating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To really maintain the healthy state, how to do as much as to slow it down. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what we find is if you do, if you can support it, you, you know, you know, it's not going to, to cure the dementia. You can't, you know not going to reverse Alzheimer's disease but what we do find is that it just helps to alleviate some of those waking symptoms and support people to live well at home as a family you know that if you'll you've had a better night's sleep we all you know regardless of whatever health conditions we've got if we sleep well we're less likely to be forgetful or grumpy you know it affects all those things you know our mood and so on so if we have a cognitive impairment as well it's really important to look after our sleep just to give us the best waking function yeah and improve uh, our um, quality of life yes that's right yeah right yeah yeah very important so near the end of the show um if our audience want to find more about your work your research um how can they find you well um they can find information about me on the sleep wake research center website i can put it on the show note and also just looking looking me up um, at Mass University. So the website's www.sleepwake.ac.nz, information about me there. Um, as I say, I've actually recently moved into the health and ageing research team, also at Mass University, so where we're doing work there, looking at health and wellbeing across the lifespan, including Wonderful. sleep there. Yeah, mm. Such an important topic. So at the end, um, if a lot of the audience who are listening are either um, diagnosed with dementia themselves or they, they know someone who have 
this condition. What are do you have any final wisdom you want to share? With <laughs> um, I think it's just being aware and taking note of the changes in your own sleep, rather than you know we see these sensationalized messages about sleep and dementia and aging and so on. It's actually thinking, how am I expecting to sleep? How has it changed in myself? Is this a problem for my waking function? And to always consider talking to your health specialist about it. You know, we don't, we shouldn't necessarily expect sleep to get worse with aging. We sh- we're all entitled to a good, a good sleep. And it's, it's always worth assessing whether we can, it's just a case of tweaking those dimensions to increase our own sleep health or having an assessment to see if there is an underlying sleep disorder that can be addressed sooner rather than later to support sleep as we get older. Wonderful. Thank you, Rosé, for coming to the show and sharing all this wonderful knowledge with us. Thank you for having me. If you have a question about dementia and sleep, feel free to leave a comment. Let me know. I'm attending the World Sleep Conference right now. So for the next several episodes, I will pick some great valuable tips from the previous episode and put them together for you. Hopefully it will be helpful to answer some of your questions. I also plan to interview quite several sleep psychologists and sleep specialists during the conference. And hopefully after the conference, we will have a lot of great guests lined up for the rest of this year. Stay tuned. More to come. I'm your host, Dr. Yishan. I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.